Inside the IC is sponsored by Microsoft Federal, the choice for classified missions. Welcome to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal on Federal News Network. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. I'm joined today by Henry Sikulski, Executive Director of the Non-Proliferation Policy Education Center. Hey, Henry, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited to talk about the center's uh, big report that was published earlier this spring, Overclassification, How Bad Is It? What's the Fix? It focuses on the problem of government agencies overclassifying national security information, which is a problem that we've also talked about on, on this show and inside the IC before. But there's a wealth of information in this report. I want to get into some of the findings and recommendations. But first, Henry, can you just explain the primary drivers behind this report? Well, I think I'm like most people. That's to say I'm lazy, naturally. But I still have a sense of moral indignation. There's a little light down there in my soul. And when I get pushed around, I get angry. And this happened, and it was very difficult to understand what was going on. I did a a major study with almost entirely people who had no clearances, it was all unclassified, and it had received some government support. And as a result, it had to be reviewed. And they decided that they, for whatever reason, and I really never understood what the reason was, they couldn't release it. It needed to be constantly reviewed. And I, I think technically it's still undergoing a review. This is like, I don't know, now almost six years because it's sensitive. <laughs> I'm laughing because I don't, I really did not know what to make of that. And misery always loves company. So I started calling around saying, you know, am I the only one to undergo such strange, you know, handling? And I quickly learned no, but what was more interesting, kind of like if you have a chronic illness and you start talking about it, you discover everybody else has a worse version of it. <laughs> and I discovered that my problem was nothing compared to the problems other people were having. And more important, I had a major insight immediately, and that is that the people who traditionally had worked the policy issue of classification reform were mostly backward looking. And what I mean by that is they wanted to declassify things that would document what had happened in the past. They were not properly focused, I think, enough on how overclassifying cheats us of our future, not just of our past. And admittedly, what I was engaged in was historical. So, you know, I was, you know, an example of backward looking uh, that was being harmed by overclassification. But it dawned on me the forward looking problems were much more interesting and much less attended to. Uh, I got a phone call about this time from someone in a foundation who said, hey, we've got some extra money. You don't get these calls very often. Is there anything you would like to do? I had held a dinner already and discovered in fact, there were a lot of people interested in this who were pretty senior. And so I said, sure, give me a little bit of money. I'll hold more dinners on more aspects of this. And that's what I did. And that's roughly what generated the, the raw material for that report. It's amazing how, uh, you know, just a dinner or a conversation can kind of drive things like this. And it seems like you're coming out with this report at the 
exact right time because three years ago, I'm not sure if this was a big, big conversation in Washington, and now it really is. Well, you know, I always like to say that my, what few successes I might have are due to no or bad planning. I mean, there was nothing. Who could know that this 21-year-old would put the whole question of classification to the breaking point? Because, you know, there have been previous stories about the presidents taking papers that they really shouldn't have. But that didn't seem to be enough. Somehow or another, there was a tipping point with that story of the 21-year-old sharing stuff so he could brag on a, on a website. You know, that happened about two or three weeks after I had released the report, so I had no way of knowing. Sure. Well, it's sometimes timing timing is, is impossible to actually control, but it's everything. So, yeah, let's get into some of the findings. You said that, obviously, there's this backward-looking aspect to declassification that's important, but perhaps there's an even more important forward-looking aspect to this. So uh, explain a little bit about why overclassification is this really harmful thing to national security from that perspective. Well, first, I'll give you some examples where anyone with a high school education would say, that's not good. <laughs> and then I'll generalize. Uh, here's an example that I encountered. What if I was to tell you that we had soldiers in Afghanistan who needed to get detailed maps of the front line of battle that were you know, fighting with Afghanis, and they couldn't get the maps from the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency quick enough. And when they finally did get the maps, which had and images that had all sorts of information, they couldn't share it because it was classified no foreign, no foreigners. And so it was useless, absolutely useless. And so they started to open their own wallets to buy commercial imagery that was unclassified, and they worked with that. What if I was to tell you that the Space Force recently created oversees all of the most important, in my opinion, most highly leveraged military-related technological efforts that we have, but 1,700 of them are under special access program clearances, which means only a handful of people are cleared for each one of the programs, which is a prescription for not being able to manage these programs at all. And they're, they're our cutting edge. Holy cow. Then you have this thing called the International Trade Arms Regulations, or ITAR. ITAR works as follows. If you're a defense firm and you're innovative and you want to sell something to the government, you tell them about it, immediately whatever you said and whatever the program is can no longer be spoken about to anybody without getting clearance first from the U.S. government, State Department in particular. Now, what happens is people get wise to this and they go, well, that's a restraint on my ability to trade and get investments. So I'll just not work with the U.S. government. Great. It gets better. When you finally establish to the world that you're not working with the U.S. government, it allows, I don't know, Chinese investors to buy what you're doing. And this actually has been going on in the past at a terrible clip. I think it's, it's being curved now. Uh, then we all talk about deterrence, right? We love deterrence. Whatever we do deters. Well, okay, maybe. Uh, but overclassification makes it impossible to tell a public story about what you can do in a lot of cases. Here's a good example. The head of the Space Force uh, was asked to speak at one of my events, and he couldn't say that the Russians were trailing our 
Keyhole 11 or KH11 satellites. Why? KH11, although it's referred to constantly in Newsweek and other places, you can't say that. You can't admit that it exists as a program. It's an imagery satellite in low Earth orbit. Well, and then finally, all of our strategic memories are literally being destroyed. You know, a lot of documents get burned. You know, one way to keep up with you know, being able to declassify every 25 years is just to get rid of the document. Then you don't have to declassify it. You have fewer things to do. This goes on. I mean, everything I did in my office, which is code word, 30 years ago, was burned. And I'm not sure that's smart. I mean, some of the things I did actually were interesting. So, you, you know, these are just some examples. Uh, I mean, uh, finally, uh, I guess I said finally twice. I apologize. Um, you know, information warfare or open source intelligence is becoming more and more important. We're seeing this in how we deal with the Russians and the war against Ukraine. Well, you know, to have open source intelligence, however, right now requires it to be validated by the intelligence community. And that process makes it almost impossible to get a lot of things out. That's just, you know, absurd on the face of it. I mean, we're the country that's open, not China or Russia. We should have an advantage in, in being doing open source intelligence uh, and trading in it and using it to leverage other people's behavior. We're not there yet. Now, I think that raises a general point. We need, as we approach the prospect of, of military conflict and wars in the future, to be able to out-innovate our adversaries. We need to be very agile. And more generally, we need to understand that the new modes of warfare are going to demand lots of data. And you're going to have to share a lot of this. You're going to have to take new risks. I mean, I think we're operating way too much right now uh, under a theory of warfare that was uh, coined a century ago. It's called air war theory. Billy Mitchell, Duhay, uh, Trenchard, all these very famous people argued that, well, the way to deter and win wars was to be able to threaten the immediate destruction of your adversaries, uh, demographic, military, and industrial capital. And that meant massive bombing. The idea was that if you could disable a nation, if you could obliterate it physically uh, going after those targets. Now, I think the new generation of warfare is a little different. It says you can disable a country with precision and, and information warfare uh, without physically obliterating it or decimating it. And that's because you, you use data. Now, I don't know how well we can transition to this new theory of warfare and how sound the theory will be. But boy, you better be ready to find out we are not where we need to be in making that transition. And that is going to require sharing information that previously has been kept from firms, allies, people who innovate, and the public, to say nothing of you know, sharing it with our adversaries uh, when it undermines the public support for what they're doing. All of this requires more risk-taking, and, and uh, that is not where we're at right now. And again, that's Henry Sikulski, Executive Director of the Nonproliferation Policy Education Center. We're going to take a short break, but we'll pick up the conversation with Henry when we come back. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network.
With the broadest range of breakthrough technology solutions, Microsoft Azure for Government is the choice for classified missions. Built for government agencies and their partners, unlock insights, build new capabilities, and empower collaboration in secret and top-secret environments. Microsoft Azure is built for national security missions, combining cloud-native capability with classified networks, hybrid and multi-cloud, to create a developer-friendly platform that is ready anywhere and secure everywhere. Visit MicrosoftFederal.com. That's MicrosoftFederal.com. Welcome back to Inside the IC. I'm your host, Justin Doubleday, and I'm speaking with Henry Sokolsky, Executive Director of the Nonproliferation Policy Education Center, about the center's report on overclassification in government. One aspect of overclassification is the process in government through these classification guidebooks. Um, And that's one thing that your paper touched on. Can you talk a little bit about how these guidebooks are a major part of the problem? Well, you know, one of the things I discovered meeting with people who had complaints about the system is there's a lot of belly aching. I don't know if we exhausted all the people that were, were upset, but we got a, a taste of that just how many different interest groups were upset, included the aerospace industry in particular, but, but there were others. And, you know, I, I really kept holding the meetings because I was, I was trying to figure out, well, what's the good news? I mean, if, if all we can do is belly ache, Maybe we don't have a problem. We have a fact that we can't change. Now, I'm not convinced one way or the other, and I'll tell you why. I finally hit upon some information about something that worked, which addressed some of these problems and was effective. And that is, there was one agency that was operating under 65 classification guidebooks. And they realized that nobody was going to read all those things, and nobody was. And what they were doing was trying to get to that, you know, entertaining end of day event by clearing their desk off by hitting over classification buttons on everything and say, well, no one's going to get get me in trouble by overclassifying and I don't have to read the guidebooks and the guidebooks are Greek and they contradict in the debate. In fact, right now, by some accounts, we, the government is operating under 2,100 of these guidebooks. Other people say maybe it's more like 4,000. I, I don't honestly know, but when you're talking thousands, you, you know, you're already in a place you don't want to be. Then there are 1,400 individuals who have original classification authority, which means that they can make judgments, and that's it. And then what they do is there are thousands more that they, they delegate their authority to, which I, you know, I once had such authority. Uh, I don't remember, thankfully, classifying anything, but, but I, there were people pleading with me to do that, uh, which is interesting. Now, what happens with this many guidebooks is they don't get used and people resort to doing things that don't even follow the guidebooks. You've got to get those down. If you don't boil them down, no one will look at the guidebooks or use them. So that's bad. And they'll make mistakes, both overclassifying and, to be honest, underclassifying. But it gets worse. Given the bow wave of uh, things that have not been reviewed for, for lowering or eliminating classification, and we're talking about millions upon millions of documents every year that just sit and fester and grow and don't get looked at, there's no way you'll ever catch up or cope unless you do some increased amount of automation. 
Well, you can't automate if the guidance is contradictory or vague. So it's like a double, double whammy uh, kind of penalty if you don't have their consolidated guidance. We need to move in that direction. That agency with the 65 different guidebooks previously was, I believe, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which your report and others, I should mention, uh, they've really been held up as an example of how to at least take on this challenge of having one consolidated guidebook. How did they do that? And and why could this serve as a model potentially for other parts of government? Well, if you talk to any grizzled, experienced American bureaucrat, uh, or for that matter, the, the, the chattering class that follows them, they will say, you know, there's no incentive to take risks to lower classification or eliminate classification. You can ruin your career. And therefore, all of the incentives are loaded in the direction of overclassifying uh, rather than, you know, doing anything else. Now, that is a powerful and I think largely correct view, but it goes too far. And when it does, it gets things dead wrong. Actually, many of the agencies and offices of the U.S. government are taking risks by overclassifying, and they need to be sensitized to this. Luckily, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency had that Afghan example rubbed in their face, and they realized very, very quickly on because of that and other things like it, that unless they could get the classification on the information that they were massaging and and working lowered, they wouldn't have any customers. Not only that, but most of the value added at NGA to the images that they get from the National Reconnaissance Offices and other places is due to private contractors who analyze the images. And you have to share information with them for them to be able to do their job properly and quickly. Not only that, but it wasn't just, you know, the Afghanis we couldn't share with. It was other military allies in NATO. So they kind of realized they were going to go out of business because people would just go to commercial imagery. It wasn't as good, it wasn't as informed, but at least it was something. And it wasn't subject to these restrictions. So they got focused, and it's very interesting how quickly an agency can get focused if they want to. They looked at the problem very quickly, came to the conclusion that one of the drivers of their problem was having too many vague, contradictory guidebooks to begin with, controlling their classification and declassification process. So what did they do? In five months, they figured out how to consolidate the 65 guidebooks they were operating under down to one. This helped. Not only that, but you could appeal. Now, there is an appeal process, but as my own personal experience suggests, sometimes it's Kafkaesque. You do not get out of the process. It never ends. They had a 30-day suspension on any appeal. And if a decision went the way of the, the complaint, they changed the guidebook. So that's interesting. Why? Under Pentagon rules, guidebooks don't have to be updated more than once every five years. NGA started to get more than five times a year. 
that's more like it. All of this has put uh, the NGA in an advantage position as it now moves into doing artificial intelligence projects. And it's going to be one of the lead agencies because it knows how to squeeze performance out of people they need to collaborate with and the customer by getting the classification right. Now, when, when people, officials uh, with programs, come to the Hill and ask for money, someone now needs to ask, well, how many classification guidebooks do you operate under? And if the answer is some number like the U.S. Army, 400, someone, Senator Snork or Congressman Bedfellow, should say, you're not going to get what you asked for. And you won't until you come back with a better story on what you're doing with your classification. Because we know you can't innovate, you can't collaborate if you're operating under that many classification guidebooks. We're not there yet. But that suggests there is some way at the front end to do better. There are a lot of things, and we should talk about it at the back end, that are probably are going to be more likely to succeed. But I think we can do better even at the front end. Yeah, that's a great overview of the guidebook problem. Well, let's talk about the back end a little bit of the issue and how automation and maybe just automatic declassification, better automatic declassification rules could help this challenge as well. It may be, given that there are one to four million people operating with clearances, a real project ahead to clear the underbrush of that demand signal. I mean, unless you get those numbers back to something reasonable, my hunch is that there's always going to be an urge to classify to give these folks something to read and an urge on their part to overclassify to stay in business. There also, it doesn't help that a clearance is a market. There's a market in getting clearances. And what I mean by that is if you're young, you can bootstrap your salary up to six figures very quickly if you can get that clearance. And then once you get it, maybe you might not make quite as much as people in industry make with those clearances, but you can always retire. And boy, do a lot of people in the government retire. We're a retiring class, if you will. What do you do? Oh, you take your clearance and you do consultant work and you get a boatload of additional money on top of your retirement. This is, I won't call it crime, but it is organized. <laughs> and I think that's built into the incentive system to continue to do lots of classification and lots of clearances. I've explained, I think you can push back and you should, but at the back end, there are answers. One thing that we can do once we reduce the clearance books is automate the preliminary work. And there is some uh, sign that systems like this are, you know, doable. I, I, you know, we're not, we're not asking our artificial intelligence system to write an essay or be creative. We're just saying, where in the guidebooks are there signals that suggest the sentences that you're looking at in the document you're scanning might be connected? and just highlight it. Then you hand that over to someone who's human and they look up and make a judgment. Uh, that could speed things up dramatically, reducing review periods that could go, you know, many hours or days uh, to minutes. Well, that's, that's the kind of, you know, help we need to take care of the mountain. Beyond that, I think though, is something you suggested by uh, your comments. And that is, 
maybe we need to be a little more liberal on automatic classification driven by time. I, I listened to someone who you know, worked in one of the most secret of the agencies, the National Security Agency, and he made an argument that said, you know, everybody gets a new iPad or a new desktop or a laptop, you know, every three years, four years. You know, presumably at 10 or 15 years, the idea that you're predicting sources and methods with regard to that electronic matter, pretty silly, no longer prevalent. And, you know, maybe there should be a, certain areas that are protected. He, he mentioned sea cables and what's related to that, because that doesn't change so much. But you could come up and conjure, you know, areas to protect. But the others should be sort of automatically declassified unless someone can come up with a reason not to. If you did that, uh, I think it would sober up the system a bit because right now it's 25 years and very frequently it slips to 50. And if you're not reviewing it, it's infinity. Uh, there's also another cynical thing that's going on that really needs to stop. And that is, oh, well, if you don't want to get caught up in a declassification kerfuffle, don't write a memo at all, including the things you normally should be writing, which are memos of decision. You want to kind of push back on all that. And the reason you do goes to something very fundamental about self-government. You know, people who get attracted to public service sometimes start with pretty vulgar reasons, according to the founders. They want to make money. And sometimes in local government, they want to do corrupt things <laughs> or help their friends out, I think is the way that's described. But then people want to get power. You know, once they, they see that they, you know, can make a living, they want power. And then the very best you hope at the top want to make a name for themselves in history. Well, if there's no clarity about what they did and no reason for them to believe anyone will ever find out what they did, that's not good. That could be a bigger problem than just national security per se. That could be corrosive to having decent people, you know, running things and doing decent things. They might get in the habit of not doing it because they know they will never be found out. We don't want that. So the automation, there was a State Department program that looks like it's about 97 to 98%, I believe, 95 to 98%, similar in its initial conclusions of scanning documents than humans have made. So there's stuff that can be done. If there was a, a demand, the tools could be there. But the critical point is this could take a while, and I'll tell you why. Even if you had the tools and you had the arguments, you've got to change the culture so that they want to use the tools and do the right thing. I think that's a longer, longer and bigger project than, than something technical. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So much of this comes down to uh, a culture that's decades really in the making. Well, this issue has really come to the forefront. Members of the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, recently introduced two separate bills to address these challenges within the classification system. Your report calls on Congress to kind of take a more active role in these issues. So here it is. Here they yeah. are. What's your initial yeah. view on these pieces of legislation? I suppose it's my job 
to be an optimist that, that things can be reformed and solved. But having served on the Hill, I got to tell you, this is not going to be easy. Okay, they got draft legislation in the Senate. They don't in the House. The House wants to do its own bill. And you know what? I wouldn't begrudge them their right to, to figure out what they think is correct. What I do worry about is neither body will hold hearings. Now, I think the House held a hearing, I think it was March 1. We've yet to see the Senate hold a single hearing. I think this kind of problem does not do well with legislation that doesn't enjoy uh, the process of hearings to explain what's needed. And I fear that that's exactly how this is going to be handled. I hope I'm wrong. And that what they'll do is take bits and pieces of the legislation and throw it onto the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the, one of the only vehicles besides, the, I guess, the omnibus spending bill that comes at the end of the session that anyone uses. That is not going to be adequate. Also, the legislation, you know, calls for a major report to be done by the director of uh, national intelligence. Well, first of all, I can't imagine that they want to do the report. <laughs> I mean, no executive officer enjoys that. And second of all, what's with that? Do we need another report? I think there's an argument that doesn't. I, I've become friendlier with something that Congress created called the Public Interest Declassification Board. It's created 20 years ago by Congress. Congress has never bothered to give it a budget or dedicated staff. It's, oh, well, you know, the executive will, will just staff this with detailees. They haven't used it properly. I'm not sure, you know, right now they're staffed up enough to be used for very much. But, you know, that vehicle ought to be used. It ought to be sort of the government accountability office for classification reform issues. And they should be you know, all sorts of ideas come to mind. They could tally what the backlog of uh, unreviewed documents is. They could tally who is put in for Freedom of Information Act and uh, released and are sitting in line. How many have been actually taken care of? You know, how many documents uh, are piling up? How many electronic ones? How well is anyone communicating from agency to agency? Apparently, none of the computers or uh, review data sets bases are connected uh you know what about the, the classification guidebooks are they coming down up how are they being used maybe all of that is not something i think congress has got the stamina or staff or willpower to keep up on but the board that they created could do that uh, they need to interact with that board and hold hearings about what they discover or some such other agency. I don't think any exists that's any more ideal than the Public Interest Declassification Board. But, you know, I'm ready to listen to anybody come up with alternatives if they're serious about doing something. Lacking that, I think, you're, you know, you're going to find that this will fall off the table. And it may already have. I mean, the debt ceiling drama pretty much pushed this classification issue. Uh, off the pages. And so, you know, how do you get it back on? Oh, you need another catastrophe, another horror story, another scam. So I, part of me is optimistic. Part of me is, I wouldn't say cynical, but skeptical. I actually, you know, I'm enough of a fanatic now that I actually believe 
China and Russia are the least of our problems. If we don't crack this, we're surely not going to be able to take care of that uh, set of problems. Uh, but more important, I think it goes to the very essence of what the proposition of self-government requires. And that is a certain awareness and, and willingness to share information at the right level. Sometimes that's classified. Don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing get rid of secrets. But at some point, knowing that whatever you do will be known, and it should be because you are, as an official, conducting uh, a trust. Those, that information is not yours to destroy. It isn't yours to hide. It is what's necessary uh, to protect the common defense. And it is really in possession of the sovereign. And that's us. It's not the government. So ultimately, it has to become public. All right. I get the feeling that we could talk about this for hours longer, but unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. So again, Henry Sikulski is executive director of the Nonproliferation Policy Education Center. Henry, thanks for taking the time to talk through these issues. Thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your shows.